This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you're making the decision for a trade-off of how understandable my model is going to be versus how accurate I'm going to be, I think a lot of folks are unaware that they're not going to get that same increase in improvement if you're trying to look at fraud detection. This is Humane, a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. For our viewers tuning in, today I'm interviewing on the Humane Podcast, Scott Clendaniel, who has a rich history in machine learning involved with instruction, teaching, pedagogy, as well as working in AI labs, and today doing a lot of work at Leg Mason in projects that you could say were in the works all the way since the 1980s, and you just shared you know, some of your background, and I'd love to hear, I mean, how, how is it different today working on these projects compared to the 80s and 90s? Sure. Well, of course, back then I used to drive my dinosaur into work and pull out my stone tablet. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Not quite that old. <laughs> um, but what's been most interesting to me is that the general nature of the projects has remained very similar. And a lot of the skill sets needed to solve those problems have remained the same. What's really changed is that the pace of advancement has gotten a great deal faster. I can safely say that the industry has changed probably more in the past seven years than it did in 23 years prior to that. And what I mean by that is there is such a larger focus these days in terms of technology and software development as opposed to it used to be much more of an approach of problem solving and statistical techniques. And I think it's absolutely fantastic that it has opened up so much 
so that we're able to bring in so many folks that have a much stronger computer science and software development background. I think that's been great. And the potential downside is that the nature of the problem solving seems to have shifted much more towards a software development approach than it has been from a true problem solving approach. And that's a double-edged sword. Right, because that problem solving would be traditionally the uh, analytics, the dashboards, the visualizations, the predictions with actuaries, a lot of those, right, where you're very statistics and data minded. But if I'm hearing you right, it's that now it's building infrastructure and applications that are end products that include machine learning or predictions. Absolutely. I think that the approach that I've always taken has been, I want to truly understand what lessons are to be learned in the data that can be applied to more problems than just the model I'm building. One of the concerns I have as people have moved more and more towards deep learning solutions is that people are unaware of the fact that in many cases, a deep learning approach is not going to provide you with a more accurate solution to your problem. And so when you're making the decision for a trade-off of how understandable my model is gonna be versus how accurate I'm gonna be, I think a lot of folks are unaware that they're not going to get that same increase in, in improvement if you're trying to look at fraud detection, as an example. So, so I'm a consumer, and I'm concerned with fraud detection because my Chase credit yep. card is used all the time when I travel, and but yep. I don't really pay attention to the back end. Like for me, it's okay, it's a linear regression model predicting if my transaction is not in New York or it's a deep learning model. I mean, why should I care? I don't think you should. I think that the only reason you're going to care is why did my transaction get approved or not? Or what am I doing so that I can keep from having important transactions from being turned down? Today, we don't get much of that from the banks. You know, They don't say, David, uh, you flagged five transactions outside of the state of New York. So uh, next time you travel, you should let us know. Like That doesn't happen yet. It doesn't happen a lot. I think that um, it's a little bit different for fraud detection versus being turned down for a loan, for example. If mm -hmm. you're turned down for a loan, they're going to tell you exactly what's driving your credit score and what's limiting that score from going up. And it's actually required by the regulators to be able to have a very simple, succinct answer to those questions. What are the factors that kept me from having my loan go through? Right. So the factors are I had too much debt outstanding, too yep. many inquiries on a report, not Absolutely. enough credit and other factors. So it's very, you could say, transparent to the consumer, not black box as some of these algorithms are. And I think that's one of the advantages of having started out in financial services so long ago was there was never permission to have a black box. So when you start from the perspective that your model must be fully interpretable, it really builds a lot of discipline and how you go about to solve a problem. One of the challenges I have for more advanced problems where those regulations are not in place is if you don't understand it when it's working, how are you going to fix it when it breaks? And I don't think there's been a heck of a lot of focus on that particular issue. And that concerns me with a lot of the more convoluted approaches to model building that happened today. 
right? And, and, you know, we're seeing in the news, particularly around ethics of using deep learning models. And for example, one pioneer in e-commerce that our consumers will know, Amazon, for their hiring practices, were using AI models to screen candidates and determine who's a good candidate for a role. Uh, but what came out in the news was that the model was excluding all women from being interviewed. It just, Absolutely. for some reason, that was occurring. And I mean, you know, if, if a consumer's like, I'm ready to apply for tech, but what if this, uh, this algorithm's going to exclude me from interviewing? Should I not even apply? I mean, I, I think what I'm thinking of is how do consumers protect themselves or arm themselves against how AI is disrupting our lives? And I think that's going to be a question that has to be raised in terms of consumer groups need to be oriented not only to protecting the rights of consumers, but increasing uh, the requirements on that transparency of the model. Because in most cases, it isn't at all a sinister act from organizations that they're trying to do something that is going to have negative impact on folks. Many times it's they themselves don't understand what's happening with their own algorithms. If we allow organizations to have impact on consumers without understanding they're even having that impact, that's a big issue. Right. The algorithm is so complex that Amazon's working on. No one in their right mind would ever exclude women from the interview process. So it's it's not like someone said, hey, I don't want women here, you know, Me Too movement, let me strike this up. It's that the algorithm just started training and changing over time. And, you know, the question, as you just brought up, Scott, is what do we as consumers do? Do we create ethics groups? Do we create accords? Do we stand up to corporations? Is it humans versus robots? I mean – I don't think it needs to be that much of an issue. I think it needs to be oriented more along the lines of if someone is going to be reviewing policies for what are going to be fair hiring standards, there needs to be what they use in financial services, which is called an adverse impact test. And what that means is regardless of why the algorithm was accidentally excluding women doesn't matter, it needs to be fixed. And so regardless of the intent of the algorithm or the model, if it has an adverse impact on a group, it's not allowed to move forward. I think by making that small requirement in terms of anything that's going to have a broad-based impact on society, such as hiring or um, accepting job applicants or um, approving someone from, for a loan, anything that's going to have a societal impact needs to be able to pass that adverse impact test. If it can't, it shouldn't be allowed to go forward. And then the question that's being begged from here is not just here's this litmus test, this adverse impact to pass, but who is that regulator? Like who is that board to say the standard's rigorous enough? Is it going to be a Six Sigma standard? I mean, how would that be assessed? Well, I, I think it depends on the industry and the application. Um, in terms of financial services, a lot of those regulatory boards are already in place. And a lot of regulation is already in place. There, there's always sort of a, uh, been a long history of that going back into the 60s. And I think in many ways it served us well. Um, in terms of hiring, I don't have the level of expertise in the legal arena to determine where it should be passed or how it should be passed. 
It's more along the lines to make folks aware that it's an issue that needs to be addressed. That's right. Okay. And that makes sense. And in the financial space, you know, I actually got started in the actuary field. Uh, I did a lot of work with Aflac on loss experience uh, monitoring. There you go. And, and seeing that, and um, it was actually around women and uh, women who were working uh, to adjust their insurance premiums based on health factors and risk factors. Sure. Um, and, you know, that work traditionally actuary was manual, um, but there was... Uh, and, and I recall still regulation there that, you know, if we're changing these rates, like these rates have to be across the board. It can't discriminate a certain class. And so what I'm hearing from there is that this exists today in, in finance, this exists today in education, but not with the AI element. And because technology has changed so fast since 2012, what can we do for these regulations to keep up? Well, and I think in some ways, we as an industry, those of us who work in AI, are putting ourselves sort of on the horns of a false dilemma. And what I mean by that is there are many folks who are engaged in building models who stubbornly believe that I'm either going to have to have a completely black box to have an accurate model, or I'm going to have a transparent model that's going to be terrible. My experience has been that there are very few applications where you're going to see orders of magnitude of improvement by having a black box model. So for years and years and years, uh, when I started in the industry, I was terrified that I was going to use the wrong algorithm to solve a given problem. So out of that fear came a healthy respect for testing every algorithm I could get my hands on. And what I found is that in many, many cases, sort of the law of the multiplicity of good models proves out if you have your data prep done correctly and you have your problem defined well, there are all kinds of algorithms that can solve a given problem with very similar rates of performance. A lot of those are a lot easier to understand and explain to others uh, than some of the more black box approaches like a 400 layer uh, deep learning network. If you need to be able to identify kittens in YouTube videos, yeah, you're probably going to need something like that. If you're trying to decide whether someone might be uh, qualified for a job or a loan, you're going to find that in most cases, those techniques are a bad fit for the problem. It's not one algorithm is good or another algorithm is bad or that you have a binary choice of it's explainable or it works well. It's trying to figure out which tool is going to be applicable to the job. If I go to build a house and I have the world's greatest power drill, that's fantastic for whenever I need to drill a hole. But if I need to hammer something into a wall, the power drill is not going to help me very much, regardless of whether it's a great power drill or it's a lousy power drill. It's the wrong tool for the job. And I think we have a responsibility to make sure that if we're using something that is particularly obtuse in terms of interpretability, that we have a really good reason for using that. I think that makes sense. And, and that's why a lot of the applications as consumers we've been using, uh, one could notice errors using Amazon Alexa, OK Google, Facebook Portal. You'll, you'll notice in these commands that they don't always work perfectly, uh, whether it's a result of an accent or a sure. phrase or colloquialism. But now as new models have been experimented with, uh, that recently there's been some breakthroughs with Google and Stanford, it's getting better. But I think that um, 
comes to bear fruits that one has to be willing and open to try different models. Absolutely. Um, and if uh, I'm trying to remember who had the great quote that statisticians like artists have the bad habit of falling in love with their models, whatever their particular approach is tends to be the approach they want to use for everything because it's more convenient and you become very comfortable with an algorithm and a methodology, but mm -hmm. you really have to enforce discipline on yourself to make sure that really is the right algorithm or model to solve the problem you're trying to address. And in many cases, there's something that is very interpretable that will get you to the same level or better than something that is completely uninterpretable. Now, Scott, although we're getting quite technical right here, for our audience, I want them to know that both of us are involved also in the education space. And part of this is teaching students how to effectively interpret models and which one to sure. use for projects. And uh, so the question I want to ask for you is, you know, if I'm someone working in advertising or retail and, you know, I'm concerned, you know, AI is coming in, jobs are being eliminated, how should I best reskill or upskill myself? Like, what does the workforce of tomorrow look like? Well, um, let's start off with small questions here. Um, <laughs> the workforce of tomorrow. <laughs> it's a big question. That's right. Um, I think being aware that models are out there, being aware that models are being applied to different situations is the first step. There are certain fields, I think, that are going to be very highly impacted by AI and are going to reduce uh, the number of available positions. I would not recommend right at the moment if someone is just starting school that radiology is their best first choice because so much of computer vision is taking over certain aspects of that field. In right, terms I was of meeting with a, a doctor uh, this year, and they were talking about how now it's like brain scans that it's a hundred percent done by the robot. So the robot and the algorithm does all these scans, determines if a sample of tissue is malignant, and then there there are still a couple humans who will look at these scans and will assess them to confirm that accuracy um, but whole divisions have already started losing out i think that's true and i think that there are certain fields where that's going to be a big issue but remember there's been a lot more press and attention from the media on ai recently but the use of using decision systems goes back to the 1940s. The term artificial intelligence was coined right after World War II. So it's not like all of this is new. I think there are much easier applications. But I think all of the folks who are afraid that there are going to be no jobs left 10 years from now, I think that is overestimating what AI is going to do. I think it's going to help make better decisions. But I think what's more likely to come up in the future is augmented intelligence where people are able to use computers better as tools to solve existing problems as opposed to replacing them. And augmented intelligence, this is a, a phrase that's just been talked about in the past couple of years. It's, you know, bridging the gap, right? Yes. Humans and machines working together, solving problems together. 
you know, the radiologist example, there are still a few of them, but they're using the power of the algorithm, which can scan through thousands of these images in seconds versus humans that would take days. So that is, in the essence, Absolutely. getting quicker results. And I think that the joke I tell amongst my friends is the fact that when it comes to artificial intelligence, I've seen a lot more of the artificial than I've seen of the actual intelligence. Um, I don't regard um, information systems necessarily so much as smart as they are fast. And what I mean by that is it's able to create a number of calculations and decisions in a very short period of time uh, much more effectively than someone sitting there with a piece of paper and a pencil. That's very different from waking up to have Rosie the robot do all the housework for the day. I think that there are different levels of applications of AI and different aspects of life that have been happening for quite a while and are already part of a lot of everyday life activities from whether you're using Google Maps or you're using Amazon Echo or any of those types of tools. At the same time, those who fear that everyone's job is going to be replaced in 10 years, I, I, I just don't see it. So then where... Do you see the hype or the overblown reaction for AI that people have this reaction that isn't necessarily true, maybe as a result of the media? Are there a couple examples that you could share? Sure. I think that back around 2010 was one of the big breakthroughs in terms of research with some of the Google engineers and being able to identify that for taking on very complex tasks, such as computer vision, being able to identify a face in a photo is a great example. It's very hard to do that with traditional methods. And so when you see the advance in technology and deep learning, which are basically just very complicated neural networks, you absolutely needed that. And there are a great solution for that problem. And that's fantastic. But what happened, I think, is people then assumed that all types of problems could immediately be solved by artificial intelligence. And I think if you follow the trade publications where Google publishes, um, even since October of 2018, they are still very invested in artificial intelligence as a technology, but they are very much backing away from the theory that artificial intelligence is going to be the solution for all information problems. I see. And is the reason that per perhaps we're conjecturing here, but is a reason that, you know, organizations like Google and Amazon and Facebook might be backing away from AI being the end all be all is that uh, per perhaps we were a little too optimistic on how quickly these solutions could be realized? I think it's very easy for anyone to tell a story. Um, I. Uh, that is an extreme. AI is going to take over everything or AI is completely useless. Um, AI is going to replace all our jobs or AI has no applications. Those stories are much easier to tell than it is to say AI has some great applications in very specific industries for very specific problems and they're doing a wonderful job there. And they're also not doing terribly well in other types of applications. It's a much more nuanced message and if, on, if one is only given two minutes on a nightly news program to explain an entire field, that's hard. So what tends to happen is people walk away from one of those discussions with a much more 
simplistic understanding of the situation that can be easily conveyed in two minutes, which goes back to why I think education is so important. I don't think that people need to run around knowing how to calculate in their heads uh, an activation function for a neural network. I think that's way overkill. I think that people understanding that models are out there and they help make decisions based on conditions and here are some of the things they look at and you have to be careful of the outcomes. I think that's much easier to try and get across to people. And that's where I think a lot of the focus in education should be so that people understand the good and the bad. And uh, switching gears to education, since, you know, we're both involved in that space for sure. listeners on here today, you know, Scott has uh, taught in the AI and data science realm with Johns Hopkins, University of Maryland, Harvard University, and, and other organizations. And so you've seen a lot of students, right? You've seen different students, different communities, different backgrounds, uh, and different programs trying to teach these very dense topics. Uh, I mean, what have you seen work or what hasn't worked even? One of my favorite stories is how I used to teach people how to build a model versus how I teach today. Back in the beginning, I would try and tell people all the theory and the different types of algorithms and what they did. And I found that a lot of the folks who came to the class had been assigned by their manager. They were actually required as part of their job to come to the class. And they would come into the class either terrified that it was going to be impossible to understand or afraid that if they pushed the enter button on the computer, um, things were going to start to melt down or some type of horrible reaction was going to happen. And I wasn't getting very far. So the way I teach it today is I go in and I'll say, okay, here's a program. Here's a data set. I want you to push this button and this button and this button. I want you to look at that and then press enter. Congratulations, everyone. In the course of four minutes, you've just built your first model. What? What do you mean? I, I don't understand. Once you're able to get people past that sort of wall of fear over the ability of creating a basic model, it's much easier to get people further down the path faster. I think that people let their own concerns and fears and lack of self-confidence really get in the way of understanding what's important. By the time I finished, I had regular assignments where I would take folks primarily in marketing departments and within a day and a half have them go from having never seen a computer program that did predictive modeling before at all to building their own full functional models a day and a half um, i think a lot of it has to do with focus on what's truly important what are the areas which can really cause problems and how to avoid them rather than try to set things up and have them memorize a bunch of formulas that um, is a much taller mountain to climb I see. So it's taking that visual outcome from the beginning of this is really a chatbot or this is how you determine cat versus dog or this is how the price of a house loan was calculated that then that student has that aha moment and that Absolutely. curiosity is sparked, right, to, to dive deeper uh, into what makes it work. Um, I drive to work back and forth about 20 minutes each way every day. And that seems to work out pretty well for me. But if you ask me to explain the compression ratios of an internal combustion gasoline engine, um, we'd all be in trouble because I have no idea. Um, uh, I think what's really important for me to know is what do stoplights and stop signs mean and where the brake is and what the steering wheel does and um, how fast I should be going and how to respect other drivers on the road. 
those things are much more important for me to understand. And I think it's a similar path to trying to understand the world of predictive analytics. There are a couple of components that you really need to have a firm grip on. There are some horrible mistakes that you can make, but many of them are very easy to avoid. I think there has been, quite frankly, some folks in our field in the very beginning really seemed to enjoy the fact that they understood a hidden language that no one else understood. And there developed a sort of intellectual arrogance that I know how to do this and you don't. And I'm very happy about that because that makes me feel good. We need a lot less of those people. We need a lot more people in the field who are trying to uh, share the wealth of knowledge. I think it is all about sharing the wealth, uh, as you just mentioned. And that wealth, I think consumers are going to see as their lives are potentially eased over the next few years with more AI applications. Um, you know, a lot of your work today is with the Strategic Artificial Intelligence Lab sale that you set up at Leg Mason. And uh, with that work, I'm just curious from what you can disclose, you know, are there any research projects you're working on in the labs that you think over the next few years, consumers will see that will start to benefit them? Um. With a lot of the work that I do now involves trying to do the type of education that you and I were just dis discussing and open sourcing it to the community as a whole so that anyone can start to learn the basics of how to build their own models or how to use models or how those models are going to impact them. That's one area. The other area is that uh, many folks are unaware that they're already being touched by artificial intelligence quite a bit today. So what are the applications? What are they already interacting with that they may not even understand? It's artificial intelligence. Um, I think that the last area uh, is somewhat concerning for folks because the stuff that's supposed to be truly, if, God forbid I use the word sexy in the field, but they want to learn about the new algorithm and they want to learn about the new technology and they want to learn about the latest type of uh, GPU system that they can apply their model on. Those are all well and good and those are important things. But I have found that the best increase in results usually has to do with setting the data up correctly and defining the problem correctly. And I tell people that and they sort of look at me and say, ah, that sounds really boring. And I don't, I don't find it boring, but I understand why people do. But that's where a lot of the power is. And I think we need to shift the pendulum back a little bit from the super advanced technologies and algorithms that no one has ever heard of before and whether their activation function should use ReLU or a norm sigmoid and go back to, what's the problem we're trying to solve here? And and, and what are the, the framework where we have to apply this? And how much time do we have to get this out? And how much is this gonna cost? And is there an easier way to do it? Uh, I think we need to come a little bit closer to that side and move away a little bit from all the gee whiz bang new algorithms that come out every day. This is so interesting about, you know, uh, we have platforms like Archive where there's hundreds of machine learning research papers coming out all the time. And sure. you know, researchers claim, ah, I want to use this new algorithm. I'm going to get that 1% boost to to have a huge result. But from, from what I'm hearing from you, Scott, is potentially um, a contrarian viewpoint, potentially of, you know, let's let it sit in the wild. Let's see how this algorithm 
really performs. Perhaps, you know, there's more important things such as translating business solutions today rather than optimizing an algorithm so much to the point that it was a waste of time. Absolutely. And I think that there is a point of diminishing returns that happens in modeling that happens very early in the process that people don't understand. I don't think that people understand the vast quantities of data and time that are required for using something like an advanced algorithm like deep learning. If you're going to have a 600 layer neural network, you'd better be prepared to have you know, millions and millions, if not billions of records and months and months and months of training time to be able to get that to be set up correctly. And for a particular type of problem, you may need that. For most of the problems that I've ever dealt with across 30 years, a lot of that is bright, shiny objects that are more likely to waste time and effort versus getting the job done versus using something simpler. So going on this theme of bright, shiny objects, is there a viewpoint or viewpoints that you hold that might be contrarian as an artificial intelligence researcher in education than what most people withhold that you'd like to share uh, with our viewers? I, I think that uh, definitely. Um, and I want to be clear that algorithms are extremely important and developments in algorithms are extremely important. Understanding that there needs to be a fit between a problem and that solution is the piece that I think is missing. There are some problems in the world that need something extremely sophisticated and extremely advanced, and that new research is incredibly important in that area. Just be sure that you are matching that solution to a problem that really requires that. I don't recommend that anyone try and balance their checkbook with a neural network. It's not a good use of your time. Um, and I think people need to have that awareness before they jump into starting off on something that's much more complicated than what they need. And uh, I think you said it very well put of, you know, start simple and then work on complexity over time. And yes. We're seeing the industry in AI is continuing to grow with many startups and organizations and a lot of applications, a lot of fragmentation. Are there any trends that you see occurring in the industry today that particularly would be noteworthy uh, for uh, a consumer uh, to pay attention to? Um, I think it has to do with going back to something that's even more basic, which is understand what data you're sharing with folks and how it might be used. I am not one of those people who says you should never do a transaction over the internet or that you should never join a social network. But remember that whatever aspect of a model or artificial intelligence is going to be applied to is going to be based on data. How much of that data is coming from you? And are you comfortable with that level of data being provided to someone else? That's the starting point. It's not understanding the most sophisticated artificial intelligence approach. Start with what do you feel comfortable with? What level of control do you have before you start giving away all of your information for free to everybody? Because it can be applied well and it can be misapplied. Understand the difference. Right. And some ways it could be applied well is, you know, you get a, a 
you're on Facebook, you know, the Facebook platform, and you have a recommendation to add someone as a friend who's friends of your friends who you've never met, but then you either add them and you see them at a future event, or you see them at the event and you'll say, ah, this is that name that's been constantly being recommended to me. That must be Absolutely. the AI that's been, you know, finding these without getting too technical these nearest neighbors of these relationships over time yep. so so that could be a benefit that we don't pay we don't realize it's just part of our everyday use of facebook um i, I think data in general and artificial intelligence specifically it just is it isn't that it is good it isn't that it is bad it can be used in positive ways and good ways it can be used in negative or detrimental ways so trying to develop a philosophy that all of it's good or all of it's bad, I think is the wrong way to think of it. Again, it comes back to what makes most sense for me? What makes most sense for my needs? Um, what are the potential downsides? And am I comfortable with them? And just making a decision that's right for you. AI just is, right? Are there any types of uh, talking points or things that we miss that you also wanted to, uh, to include? Um, I think that the biggest reason why artificial intelligence seems so mysterious is we do a much better job in researching artificial intelligence, and that's where we put our emphasis and our focus, and we do a pretty lousy job of explaining and interpreting artificial intelligence for folks. If we would start putting more of our efforts into making it understandable and transparent, I think a lot of other problems would go away, and a lot more comfort would be developed quickly and stop trying to turn everything into a bright, shiny object or making it seem more complicated than it needs to be. As simple as a company using this name, Facebook, that we've talked about today of saying, AI is used in Facebook to make your lives more connected, whether that's a friend, connect, a friend request that you see, whether that's a recommendation of someone to add to a message on Messenger, or that's a photo to tag, we're here to connect your lives, and that's how we use AI. Absolutely, and if we stop, uh, take a step back and use a different term for them. For example, if we talk about a model, people use models all the time, and they have no idea that they're doing it. For example, if you're trying to explain to a friend and you're sitting across the table from them over lunch in a cafeteria and you draw a really quick map, you go here and then you take a right on this street and then you make a left on that street and everything else. And you draw a real quick map, a couple seconds, hand it over to them. You've just given them a model. It's a representation of information that's used for a specific purpose. That's a model. We insist on trying to make everything look like it's going to come out of the next version of Blade Runner and that's very intimidating to people. It's not a matter that this topic is completely unfamiliar to people. We just do a really poor job of explaining how people are connected to it and do it already. Our life is a model. Us talking today is a model. And every experience is that. So some wise words being well, shared. Yeah. Language is a model of thoughts and ideas. So if you speak or listen... That's part of a model. If you hear a song, that's a model represented through music. There are all types of models that we use all the time. The problem is, is people are in such a hurry to impress one another with the complexity of the model, they miss the basic point of what a model is, what it does, and why it's important to folks. 
So a takeaway for consumers listening to today's podcast is the next time you're engaging in conversation, working with technology, think about what you are doing that is repeatable, has a process, a framework to it, and could a model be fitted to it to standardize or improve that process. Perhaps that's what the AI that we're working so hard to bring into the world is setting out to do. And in the famous words of Eric King, stop trying to balance your checkbooks with a neural network. Hire an accountant or a bookkeeper. There you go. Scott, <laughs> thanks so much for being with us today on the podcast. Uh, appreciate your time and appreciate your support as we're working to bridge the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next one. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.